the thing I would say about Twitter. I'm going to make a connection between Twitter and the antebellum Congress. Look what you made me do. I know. Um, I'm going to go there. There's an anonymous document sent to the Speaker of the House in 1858. So again, right before the war. He's a Southerner and he signs it a well-wisher. But what he says is, look, I'm writing you this because my people on my side of the house, if any of you Republicans throw any kind of missile in our direction, and by missile, he means the wrong words. Throw the wrong kind of missile and there's going to be bloodshed. I'm keeping my people from throwing missiles at you. Will you keep your side from throwing missiles at us? He's talking about words. And there's a constant dialogue in this period about, please be careful of your words. If you use the wrong words, you're going to drive people to do things because of emotion that they might not otherwise do. And once you cross that kind of a line, you're going to be in a dangerous place. So watch the way you're talking about things. And in that sense, that's a very Twittery kind of a logic, whether you're doing it deliberately or whether there's some foreign nation beaming in and throwing that kind of language out there in one way or another. Things are bouncing all over the place on Twitter, and some of that is deliberately inflammatory language. And words matter. They, they matter profoundly. Hi, you're listening to Keeping It Civil, a production of the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership at Arizona State University. I'm your host, Duncan Mensch. In this podcast, I interview scholars, writers, and intellectuals about the American political tradition and the state of intellectual life in the United States. The point of the podcast is to have an intellectual exchange of political, civic, and social issues in American life. Many of the guests on the podcast are part of the school's speaker series, which invites both liberal progressives and conservative voices, which we feel are important for the advancement of civil and liberal education today. On today's podcast, I'll be speaking with Joanne Freeman, professor of history and American studies at Yale University. She is an expert on Alexander Hamilton, as well as an award-winning scholar of political violence. Her most recent book is The Field of Blood, Violence in Congress, and the Road to Civil War. During the lead-up to the Civil War, hand-to-hand combat and acts of physical intimidation were common on the floors of Congress. Loaded guns were not only present amongst elected officials during sessions of Congress, but worse, many congressmen felt compelled to arm themselves out of legitimate fears for their own safety. This tenuous environment might seem anathema to the way politics operate today, Perhaps, though, there are more parallels between the 1850s and the 2010s than we might like to admit. Joanne Freeman. I'm here with Joanne Freeman, who is a scholar of political violence. Is that an okay phrase? Yeah. Is that fair? Yeah, that is fair. Let me start out. Many people have heard of the notorious beating of Charles Sumner by Preston Brooks in 1856. But there were many other episodes of hand-to-hand combat, of dueling, of saber-rattling, of congressmen pointing guns at each other. I was shocked when I read these things. (laughs) So was I (laughs) when I was writing it. (laughs) They seem unfathomable today. So what was the role of political bullying and the degradation of civil society in the United States prior to the Civil War? One important thing to realize is that the United States was a violent place. So it's not like the violence was just in Congress. Congress, I guess you could say, is a representative institution in many different ways. And this is one part of what was going on in the House and in the Senate, and the violence that I talk about in the book is on the floor of the House and the Senate, is partly reflective of what politics was like in that time period. But one of the things that I discovered early on in the project is Southerners, and this is a big, broad generalization that some historian out there will smack me over the head for making, but I'm going to make it anyway. Generally speaking, 
Southerners were more comfortable. They were more likely to be armed in Congress. They were more comfortable with man-to-man violence than Northerners were. And they were definitely more comfortable with dueling and threats of dual challenges. And so in Congress, Southerners were very aware of the fact that that gave them an advantage on the floor, that they could be intimidating, that they could be threatening, that they could basically intimidate a good many Northerners into backing down when it was convenient for Southerners to have a Northerner back down. And some of what the book, The Field of Blood, talks about is the way in which Southerners were strategically using bullying and violence and threats and weapons to manipulate debate and get their way. I found the whole thing just illuminating on so many levels. It gave me a different perspective on the era leading up to the Civil War that I hadn't known before. One of the things you said, you were kind of alluding to it just now, but it's also in the book. Even though there was a great deal of man-to-man threats, and this I'm quoting from you here, Congress at this time did not dissolve into a den of furies. Congress abided by informal rules of combat that kept fighting fair, though like the terms of the Union as a whole, these customs skewed Southern. Similar to what you were saying there before, it seems to me like this Southern bullying, this Southern intimidation pervaded and almost the Northerners had to abide by it and even maybe participated on some level, even if they didn't want to. And that quote gets at a tricky balance, which is the Southerners aren't trying to destroy Congress, they're trying to manipulate it to get what they want. So if what they're doing goes too far, they're not going to get what they want. And so I think for people to buy into Congress as an institution, whether you were in Congress or whether you were an American watching what was going on in Congress, it had to feel on some level fair. So, and, and this I know is totally counterintuitive, but there were kind of rules of fair fighting that, you know, if they felt that it was fair, people would sort of allow it to go on, even though it doesn't sound at all fair if a Southerner is armed and a Northerner isn't. But No, that doesn't sound uh, no, very fair. But let me give you an example. There's an incident in which there was a fellow writing a letter to somebody and he talks about looking up and seeing a stranger on the floor standing in front of a fellow congressman, a northern congressman, looking angry, the stranger, with his fist clenched, right? And so he thinks, oh, that doesn't look really good, but he actually, and he writes this all in his wonderful letter. He says, well... That's the, lucky. It, As for a lucky. historian, this it, is a gem. Oh, that, so many of those in the course of writing this book that I thought, oh, thank you so much for putting this down. He's one. So he says, well, you know, my colleague is a bigger man than whoever the stranger is. So if they're going to fight, then my guy's probably fine. And he goes back to work, which tells you something, right? That that's Tells his, you a lot about the culture of masculinity precisely. and everything else that's precisely. going on right there. So if there's a fight, I am going to be okay, is essentially what he's well, saying. I, the, or my, the, or my, my friend, friend, my friend will take care of them. However, at a certain point, he looks up again and he thinks he sees a flash of metal, which means a weapon. And he knows his friend doesn't have a weapon. So now it's not a fair fight anymore. If one man is armed and another isn't, it's not a fair fight. So he gets up and stands behind the stranger, ready to grab him if he reaches for the weapon. But as long as he didn't reach for the weapon, it was a fair fight and he was going to stand back and let it play out. Right, exactly. So it sounds insane, but they're trying... Well, but this was the logic at the time, right? Well, right. I mean, and it, and this it was did normal. have to do with manliness, right? Because you, again, all of this sounds counterintuitive. It doesn't seem like you could say a bully is someone who's behaving by rules, but they were. You know, no one wanted to look like a thug. 
They just wanted... Even though, yeah, of course, today, would any of this would make you look yes. like a thug. Fifth of this would make you look like a thug. But in the 1830s and 1840s and 1850s, it didn't so much. It was the imbalance of power in Congress. And so here's an important part of that, too, is that for a while, the political parties balance that imbalance out. Both parties have Southerners and Northerners, right? right? So it particularly feels like a fair fight if both sides have sort of... <laughs> I'm not a hockey person, but in the time of my working on this book, I know that there are hockey enforcers. Forces, and that there are people... There I, very I, much are, yes. I see you look impressed that I know this piece of well, knowledge. Well, I used to live in Canada, so okay. I'm a, a I, I know nothing about hockey, this. and yeah. I, the phrase hockey enforcer was not in my brain until I began working on this book. But, you know, these people whose job it is to sort of be the tough guys, and so Southerners in both parties kind of served that role. And so national parties Southern, were Southerners handy. as hockey enforcers, as, as, as enforcers. <laughs> a sentence Politically, I, 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 mean, but, yes. I mean, this is obviously so alien to yes. the way things operate today where people don't even go to Congress and nobody's there when they speak. So, right? well, I mean, it's, that's true, too. That's right? true, too. Yeah. So, I mean, it's so different, uh, dramatically different. There's a picture in the book, because I tried to get at this, too. And just as you're saying, nowadays we expect a big empty room and like one guy sort of standing off in the corner pontificating at a camera or something. And our image, I think, of Congress in the 1830s and 1840s, and we think of like Henry Clay and Daniel Webster and these guys and the black frock coats sort of holding forth. And the images, I think, that are in textbooks show these very formal guys who are... Well, I found an image drawn at the time of what the house really was like in the 1840s, 1850s. Okay. It's a packed room. They're talking on the margins. They're yucking it up. They're, Smoking, for yeah, sure. It, it's a Spitting really, tobacco, yes. right? Oh, there's a lot of spitting tobacco. Yeah, it's a <laughs> busy, buzzing, kind of rude, very tobacco-juiced... It's not what our image of what Congress would be like in the 19th century. Yes, they were very horrible. But it almost sounds like there was blood mixed in with the tobacco. Probably, I guess there might have been some, yeah. I mean, again, they're not trying to kill each other. They're just trying to get what they want. But the there key. were deaths, right? I mean, there, well, were, there, near was one de death. there were near deaths or yeah. severe beatings. There was some, well, Charles Sumner has a particularly severe beating uh, in 1856. And there is one duel, a fatal duel in which one congressman kills another congressman. So there is a death. They pull knives and guns on each other. I think once or twice a gun goes off, but I think a Capitol Hill police officer is shot in the leg, but I don't think a congressman is wounded. So it, I keep using the word balance and imbalance. They're really trying to manipulate the violence as a tool of intimidation rather than just sort of wail away and smack But it doesn't colleagues. work. I mean, all this ends up just making people lose faith in Congress ultimately. And I think I'm just kind of paraphrasing your own insight and losing faith in Congress, which then ultimately makes them lose faith in the union. For after a period, yes. For a while, it does work. Right? Ah, for a while, okay. you do have Northerners resigning from committees or deciding not to stand up because they know they're going to get intimidated or humiliated publicly by a Southerner if they do so. So for a while, there is some self-censoring on the part of Northerners because of this intimidation. What changes and what makes this not work quite so well is, in part, the press and, in particular, a technological innovation, the telegraph. So what happens in the late 1840s and then really particularly through the 1850s, there's this new form of technology that suddenly communication about politics and everything else is moving as it never did before with great speed throughout the country to parts of the union that didn't have that kind of quick access before. And politicians lose control of the spin. 
Whereas before, political reporters... So there were more reporters who were able to actually give more descriptions of what they were actually doing, the actual bullying, the actual violence. Exactly. Um, and the, the congressman stuff didn't that have not, time. Even though it may have seemed acceptable prior, because there were more people covering them, they were able to get out a different narrative. So there's an interesting almost media revolution component. Yes. Yes. And beforehand, it was a very sort of structured press community, whereas the reporters tried to please the congressman and didn't tend to say things they didn't think the congressman wanted them to say. So the public didn't have an absolutely clear sense of the rough edges of what was going on in Congress. And those rough edges become very apparent in the 1850s. And it mostly makes the Southerners look bad. Well, it makes the Southerners look bad and it makes the Northerners look cowardly for not fighting back. Interesting. To their own constituents or to the... Exactly. Exactly. And so the confluence of things is that the slavery problem is intensifying. The debate over slavery in Kansas is heating up. You begin to get Northerners electing what at the time they would have called fighting men to Congress. And that's the term is men who would go to Washington, go to Congress and literally fight the slave power. That was the rhetoric. That and that some was. of this is physical. This yes. is a physical fight. They're yes. get, they are getting into altercations. People aren't dying, but they're certainly getting bruised. Right. I mean, there's people getting punched and slugged. And I mean, it's physical. And, you know, in the rise of the Republican Party in the mid 1850s, you know, they rise as a northern anti-slavery party. But the rhetoric that takes them to victory and to office is we are a new party that's going to fight the slave power. And I think before this book, people didn't quite realize the degree to which that there was a literal meaning of that in Congress, that these guys again and again, these Republicans in Congress would stand up and say, we're a different kind of northerner. You think you know what you can well, so, do. So yeah. This. So what is the relationship between this and the death of the Whigs? So you end up having national parties splinter under the pressure of the slavery problem. And so yeah, the Whigs go you kind of have a little clustering of other parties kind of trying to find their way into being in that mix. The Republican Party is part of what fills that space, but it is an explicitly anti-slavery Northern Party, and that's something that you didn't have before. But it's interesting, the point that you were making, though, about these fighting men. I mean, now, I'm no expert on the Whigs, but my impression of the Whigs is not one of fighting men, that this is not something that the Whigs had a good time or excuse me, an easy time producing. There were Southern Whig fighting men. Oh, there were? There okay. were. I, a long time ago, I gave a lecture about this book very early in the project, and I was in front of an audience of scholars, Civil War scholars, and someone asked that very question, basically, a senior scholar. It's like, well, surely these bullies and people, like, they're all Democrats, right? They're not Whigs. And I was like, oh, no, no, there were Whig bullies, too. And but how many of them, though? I guess I'm trying to Southern, see whether or not there's any truth to what I'm saying. Well, I, and obviously I'm speculating to yeah, large I can't, degree. I can't, I can't give you numbers. I can't uh, count. But the fact of the matter is we tend to think of the Whigs as like this law and order, civilized, sometimes anti-slavery folk. But the fact of the matter is in the, the mix in Washington, there were Whigs who were playing a rough game, too. Interesting. Well, I'd say it's not entirely how I think of the Whigs. I think of the Whigs almost as proto-progressives. Oh, interesting. That's how I tend to think of it. And I guess that's true in, I think, in some you know, ways. When I mean progressives, I don't mean contemporary progressives. I mean progressives yeah. of the, the original late 19th century, early 20th century progressives. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I think of them as the precursor to that. That's my analysis. 
of them. So when I think of that, I don't think of strong fighting men. It's not. But there's two. I'd say progressive in policy and progressive in somehow being a rising above the culture of your time. And I'd say the former might be true, but the latter not necessarily so much. Okay, explain that a little bit more. Well, I mean, if you're calling them progressive and these are people who well, I didn't are, necessarily use that as a compliment. No. Well, but there's a tinge to that that has modern, right? Is that how you're thinking? Not ne- no, not necessarily. No, I mean, more in the sense of the Whigs were certainly for a level of governmental intervention mm-hmm. and they were more urban. Mm-hmm. I think that's those are both fair to say. Certainly even though, even though urban is a strange term when you're thinking of 1840s. Right, because there weren't really cities, at least not the way we think of them now. But I think it's fair to say both of those things, that they certainly were for... More government intervention. They were certainly for more government intervention on an economic sense, Mm -hmm. which, you know, this country's always had a very tenuous relationship with. Mm -hmm. And so that obviously had some role in their decline. But then I definitely think of them as being a little bit more genteel and more urban. I would say some of them were more genteel, but even the ones who were more genteel. Let's look at John Quincy Adams, right? He's a definite Whig. He's, you know, former president, goes back to Congress after his presidency to the House, not even to the Senate. And certainly he's a Whig in his principles and in his political beliefs. John Quincy Adams knew because he was an ex-president, he was the son of a founder, and he was an elderly fellow when he went back to Congress. On all three counts, you weren't going to slug John Quincy Adams. And he knew it. And he used that to basically bully people in favor for his policy. So he became a really anti-slavery bully. In bully in a literal sense, the physical sense that we're talking about before, or are we talking intellectual bully? Well, not quite physical. I don't think John Quincy Adams was going to like slug you in your face. But um, he would say outrageously insulting things to the Southerners and then basically do a version And they of, didn't do anything. Uh, well, yeah. e- even more than that, he would be like, bring it. So I should describe to our listeners what you're doing. You're holding your hands out and and, and actually physically saying, come and get me. Pretty much, yeah. Curling your your fingers, saying, come at me. Bring it on. Yeah, bring bring it it on. on. Yeah, he gave the 19th century version of bring it on. There's even an incident in which there's a Virginia congressman named Henry Wise, who's my most frequent fighter, I think, of all my fighters. And there's a point at which he stands up and he is itching to slug Adams and knows he can't. And he says something along the lines of, if you weren't who you are, you'd feel more than the power of my words. And Adams writes in his diary that night, oh, today Henry Wise threatened to kill me in Congress today. Right. So that undertone is there. But Adams is an 80 year old genteel Whig who knows very much how to get in the mix and use the fact that you can't beat him as a way to give him a right to say whatever the heck he wants to say during debate. And he does. He's a really effective anti-slavery advocate because of who he is. All of this opens up a new picture to the whole experience. So I study a little bit of nativism of the same era. And so one of the things that thought was interesting in your book, you mentioned a little bit about the nativist gangs. There's a passage, I think it's in the introduction, where you say something about an episode in Kansas where these gangs called the Pug Uglies and the Chunkers. Oh, in Washington. Yeah. The Plug Uglies. Oh, was, I thought it was in Kansas. No, but, uh, no, it's in Washington uh, during an election. Okay. And they're attacking um, voters. Yeah, at the polls. But there was yeah. a lot of this. I mean, this is an unknown piece of the American experience, that there was a lot of nativist accosting, especially immigrants, at the polls. And most of these immigrants were white. In fact, almost like 99% of them were white. They were Germans and they were Irish. So this is a part of my work. 
I thought it was interesting that as I was reading through your work, I thought you were at some point going to make some kind of comparisons between this white-on-white nativist violence of the know-nothings and then the white-on-white violence of the Southerners and the Northerners. But it didn't happen, which is not to say that you're wrong to make it, because, hey, you might have just opened up a window for me. <laughs> but Go, Run with it. <laughs> right, exactly. But, I mean, do you see any similarities in the way both of these groups operated? So the know-nothings were a street gang on some level. I mean, there were more than this. Was there any kind of connection to the abolitionists and anti-abolitionists? Well, or beyond Congress, outside I mean, I would say that a big difference between the gang violence and the other kinds of violence that I'm talking about is the nativist violence, the underlying message there is that whoever it is that they're attacking has no right to what they're asserting is that you don't have a right you shouldn't be here voting and taking part whereas the kind of violence i'm talking about in congress the southerners aren't saying you northerners don't have a right to be here the southerners are basically saying if you know what's good for you you'll shut up and sit down because if you don't do that i'm going to humiliate you in front of the eyes of the country so think it over no one wants to dissolve congress they just want what they want in the way that they want it a lot of what the book shows up until the 1850s is this sort of pseudo system in which you have their words, fighting men and non-combatants, that's their terms, in Congress, kind of, and the fighting men are kind of manipulating their it. Their own terms, non-combatants. Non-combatants. Well, see, that's an interesting term because it's almost like... It's, uh, it's shocking, actually. When I first discovered it, it... it the non-combatant, because it implies that most people are combatants. Yes. And so, for example, a way that that would be used would be two congressmen would be getting in an argument, and the one who is clearly a fighting man, a southerner, would say, you know, are you a non-combatant? Because if you are or are not, I will know how to proceed. If you're a non-combatant, then he probably won't, like, think about a duel. He'll register... Designated fighting man. Right. Designated fisticuff. Yeah. And they would ask, are you a non-combatant? Or they would say, you know, there's a main character at the heart of my book who's a clerk who just left behind amazing records. And when you look at his diary at the beginning of sessions, he's in the circle of Congress and a clerk for Congress for decades. And at the beginning of a Congress, he looks around and he begins to chart who the fighting men are. Or, and even during a session of Congress, he'll be like, oh, well, so-and-so's a fighting man, but his arm is in a sling, so he's not going to be a very effective fighting man, so now I don't know what's going to happen. So that's part of charting the dynamics of the floor, is building that kind of logic. It's, it's amazing. Thing. I mean, astounding logic, because it's such honor culture, but obviously brutal at the same time. This old Southern codes of conduct where it's okay to literally murder somebody in a duel, but at the same time, we have to designate... As long as you're following the rules. As long as they've designated themselves as open to be murdered. Well, know, exactly. Essentially. It's a fair fight. They're following the rules, both sides. In the one fatal duel that takes place in Congress, they're following the rules all along. Dueling, generally speaking, there's if you're going to fight a duel, the point of a duel is not to kill. The point of a duel is to show that you're brave enough to risk your life to defend your honor. And unfortunately, deaths sometimes happen. The point way. isn't to kill. I mean, so obviously it's an incredible risk. I mean, yes. I guess it depends on how good a shot either party is. The but. vast majority of duels, people do not die. Actually, the vast majority of affairs of honor. So the affair of honor is all the negotiations before you get to the dueling ground. And the vast majority of affairs of honor, they negotiate their way out. How so? How do you negotiate they, they your way out of it? back and forth and back and forth. And, you know, one man will say, I'm, how dare you say this about me? I am ready to fight. And the other one will say, well, my friend will visit your friend, and then the two friends negotiate some kind this of is an like, apology. This is what eight-year-olds do. My dad can beat up your dad. 
And yeah. my dad's friends can beat up your dad, and then usually dads don't get involved. So, <laughs> but I mean, but it's, it's so why is the it just somebody so who eventually, important. eventually, somebody insults somebody enough that they back down, or no? Uh, it's the it's why the rules are so important. I mean, for example, a typical affair of honor would be someone says something. Let's say a, even a congressional one. Someone in Congress says something insulting about somebody else. The person who feels insulted leaves the room, and later on, someone comes back bearing a note from the guy who feels insulted and hands it to the guy who did the insulting. You'll want to find a friend, and your friend and I can discuss this. So now it's gone into affair of honor territory, and they will negotiate. You said this, and it's insulting. Are you willing to apologize? Oh, you're not willing to apologize. Okay, are you willing to explain yourself? Oh, you're not willing to explain okay, yourself. Okay, so this seems actually reasonable. So yeah. th this part about it doesn't – this yeah. gives me – you know, actually, I wish a to a certain extent that we had some of these things today. I mean <laughs> – that we had more of this kind of code in terms of settling disputes. Not the potential for violence at the end if it doesn't go well, no. No, but no. the other piece. But the other piece is there explicitly because if things go wrong, someone's going to die, right? So the ah, rules are very so important. So if there, if there isn't the end game, then the process to it doesn't exist. Yeah, that's, I wouldn't have thought of that. You're listening to Keeping It Civil. I'm Duncan Minch, and today I'm speaking with Joanne Freeman. I'm Paul Carice director of the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership at Arizona State University. We launched Keeping It Civil because we believe in the power of intellectual dialogue to both renew our civic life and remind us of the value of liberal arts learning. At the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership, we are restoring space for civil discourse across divergent views on human, civic, and academic issues. Our majors and minors undertake a liberal education to discuss moral and political thought, economic thought, and America's ideals and constitutional principles. They study important historical moments and leaders, and they experience leadership challenges through special seminars, internships, and programs. This broad foundation prepares them to be ethical, adaptive leaders in their chosen professions or civil society or in public affairs. We hope you'll learn more about the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership at Arizona State University by visiting scetl.asu.edu The School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership at Arizona State University, a new class of leaders. Welcome back. You're listening to Keeping It Civil, and we will continue our conversation with Joanne Freeman. What's interesting to me about all of this, and you mentioned this, is that on many levels, this is a free speech battle mm -hmm. because the Southerners are trying to end the Northerners' right to talk about these things. They're trying to say, I mean, not necessarily legally, but culturally, they're trying to end their right to talk. And what's interesting to me is the parallels of contemporary political correctness and all of the bullying that happens, especially online or in academia. There's certainly plenty of this today, right? Where people try to intimidate other people out of their positions by writing letter campaigns to say, we need to fire this person or we need to expel this person from this organization or whatever it may be. There's a parallel here. Do you see the same thing I'm seeing? So absolutely. It's seen as whatever's going on, there's an underlying level on, at which it's about free speech. And it's about Northerners who are saying they're silencing us. They're making it so that we are not free to speak. What's interesting about it is, and John Quincy Adams actually is wonderful at this. So John Quincy Adams is anti-slavery, but he knows that he's not going to get Northerners extremely riled up 
just on the issue of slavery. Some Northerners are anti-slavery and some really just don't fundamentally care very much. But what he does know is Northerners will be darned upset if they feel that their rights of free speech and representation are being violated. So one of the ways in which he gets Northerners to care about what's going on in Congress is that's how he pitches it. He doesn't say, you know, Northerners, you should be upset about how they're trying to not allow slavery petitions on the floor. He says, Northerners, people are keeping your petitions off the floor and preventing your representatives from speaking freely about what they think. Your rights are being violated. And of course, Northerners respond to that. That feels like something, an important threat, right? Oh, my rights of free speech, my rights of representation. That's an important thing. Those are being violated. I am going to speak up in a way that they wouldn't necessarily speak up on behalf of fighting slavery. Do you see some parallels in terms of this kind of emotionalism that surrounds this violence, this bullying, this intimidation? and our increasing emotionalism in our politics and in our discourse, especially online. Again, people emote in a way to try to end the debate. There isn't as much of the threat of physical violence, although in some communities there is. I've heard that social media in certain communities really actually is responsible for, for instance, many of the deaths in Chicago where people will get into these battles on even Facebook and things like this, and then they'll say, I'm in this neighborhood, come and get me, and then what happens is deaths and many innocent people included. But I mean, do you see some connection here between this desire to end an argument through emoting? Yeah. Well, I think this is not the first time people have connected powerful emotion and the political process, right? And those things are obviously linked and they're linked in the period I'm writing about and they're linked now. I think it can be easy sometimes when evaluating politics or political history to think about policy debates and to think about party dynamics and to think about voting balances and everything else and to not factor in the human element, the emotional element, and the way in which not only does that affect things, but that can be deliberately, strategically used to For get an outcome. Benefit, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, right. And that's a lot of what we see now on social media. And that is certainly a lot of what you see in the period I'm writing about now. So there are interesting and unexpected parallels. I mean, yeah. I, so it took me 17 years to write the book, but it became more timely the longer it took me to write. Oh, so, that's, that's very fortunate for you. <laughs> uh, for me, and the, so, not for us generally, but for the book, I suppose, and for me, yeah. Now I can see things like the telegraph by spreading news very quickly, by hyping up the tone, by allowing the spread of unfiltered news, by hyping emotion, had a huge impact on political debate and the dialogue and the discourse of politics in a very similar way to what social media is doing now. It makes perfect sense that if democracy, small d democracy, is essentially a conversation between the American public and politicians and sort of what they're debating about and how they're debating, if you have new technologies that change the nature of that conversation, it makes perfect sense that that's going to scramble democracies. It makes things more democratic and not necessarily in a positive way. It makes them less controlled. It becomes a little bit of a Wild West moment where there's a new technology and people aren't quite sure how it's working and it doing things that people didn't predict and people have access to things that they didn't have access to before. And the telegraph and social media have a very similar impact. Right. That way. But it's interesting though, because in my assessment, and I would imagine you agree, and if you don't go ahead and say <laughs> something, but that the telegraph ended up being a positive development for democracy because it ended up broadcasting how truly inappropriate 
this Southern behavior was, whereas social media has probably not ended up being a positive development for democracy because it's allowed this incredible spread of probably nefarious information and allowed people to silo themselves even more than they were prior and then try to shout down certain voices, as we were alluding to earlier, just through emoting. But you're skipping an important step here Ah. as far as the Civil War era goes. So the telegraph ultimately is something that reveals things. There's that pesky civil war that happens as the telegraph is revealing what's going on. What you yeah, end pesky, up with, pesky civil war. Pesky civil war. Well, you end up with a nation watching for the first time what's going on in Washington. Northerners begin to send guns to their congressmen in the, mid- in the mail. Here you go. We can see what's happening in Washington. There's an incident I found in a newspaper in the late 1850s. And it was like a side note. You know, it's a shocking story, but I remember it it was unimportant in the newspaper. And it describes a Massachusetts congressman, and he's at a train station in Massachusetts. He's on his way back to Washington, and his constituents meet him at the train station and give him a parting gift. And it's a gun. And inscribed on the gun are the words, free speech. His constituents are literally telling this congressman, you go back to Washington and you fight for our rights of free speech. Take this gun. So, yes, the telegraph is revealing things, but it's prompting a pretty aggressive and sometimes violent oh, reaction. I see. Oh, I see. So in, there, in this sense, it's, there's very much probably a dramatic parallel. And one yes. of the things that I think is interesting, it came to me as I was reading your work. And you hear more people talk about this, is that we might be marching on some level to a second civil war. Yeah, I'm not going um, there, but you do hear people murmuring it's about it. I think it's worth contemplating to a certain extent. Certainly the degradation of our civil discourse and people's inability to really have calm discussions, measured discussions about issues without resorting to aggressive name-calling. No, no, they're not shooting each other. And I don't even think we can say for sure that people aren't mailing guns to Congress with free speech written on them because it wouldn't totally surprise me that that might happen and probably wouldn't get through the mail these days. But still, civil discourse has eroded. I can tell from the look on your face to a certain extent that you don't think that there's any possibility that we're headed in the same direction. Well, I don't make that instant parallel. And it's tempting to, I understand why it's tempting to, and I and now in the last week, people are, because of the recent incident that happened with this fellow who was plotting this attack on journalists and democratic politicians, and he at some point was talking about civil war, civil war. So, uh, you know, I suppose I'm not saying ha 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 and laughing my way out of it, but I'm also not saying, I suppose I've had to think about it a lot. The book I wrote is about extreme polarized politics politics, technologies full of conspiracy theories making politics even more extreme, disintegrating national political parties, distrust in national institutions of government, distrust of Americans in each other. I see a lot of parallels. I mean, it's pretty hard for me not to think. No, there are a lot of... You're not dissuading me. No, no. That's that's the first half of my statement, right? So yeah. So there are a lot of similarities. But, you know, there's a point towards the end of the book, yet another one of these remarkable... There are two or three remarkable documents that kind of just show you that moment, and that's a different moment from our moment. There's people by the last two years before the Civil War, everyone in Congress is armed. Like everyone in Congress is armed. They have guns, they have knives. And what's striking about it, even then, is they're armed not because they're eager to gun down the other side. They're armed because they're not sure what the other side's going to do to them. But they fully expect Civil War to break out in the House or the Senate. And so I suppose part of what I'm saying is that's a very different world. Well, but how long did it take to get there, though? The point where 
everyone was armed and they thought there was going to be yeah, where that, was, didn't I read an anecdote in your book and if I'm inventing this let me know but okay. I feel like there was an anecdote where you said tourists almost came to Washington D.C. not only to witness the violence because they were titillated by it but they were also even excited by the possibility that the union might dissolve in front of their eyes. Oh towards the end again in the 1850s yeah a congressman stands up a southern congressman stands up and says if I don't get what I want you just watch what's going to happen here it's all going to go down and I've spoken to people in both houses and we all think something horrible is going to happen and the newspapers were like what does he mean? What does he mean? I found a letter from a North Carolina congressman to his wife and he talks about the crowds of people coming to Washington to see the shootout in the house because it's all going to go down and people expect it that something like that is going to happen. But so how quickly did it escalate to the point where obviously there was this great tension and there was physical tension, physical bullying, physical violence. But then when did it cross the point where most people really knew that civil war was going to take place? How long from the beginning of that kind of tension to the point where it was a precipice and that everybody kind of felt that it was going to happen? I think it's very hard to put your finger on a moment where people are like, oh, darn, I guess we're going to have a civil war. You know what I mean? <laughs> I mean, I think they think it's not going to happen. So like the main character of my book or the sort of guide, right, his name is Benjamin Brown French, this clerk. The reason why he's at the center of the book is because at the beginning of the book, he comes to Washington and he's what would have been called a doe-faced Democrat. You know, he would do anything to appease the South, hold the union together, promote his party, whatever he can do to please Southerners, he's going to do it. And by the end of the book, he goes out to buy a gun in case he needs to shoot Southerners, right? So my thought was, okay, if, if I can take my reader from point A to point B and you can understand how the guy who starts out that way ends up being a guy who's armed and ready to shoot, that's going to show you something different about the coming of the Civil War. So even he, at a very late moment, he's kind of shocked that there's like people are seceding, states are seceding from the Union he doesn't assume there's going to be a war. He assumes, well, secession, and maybe they'll come back. Oh, maybe they won't. I don't know. He's prepared. He's talking a lot about like, well, if there's going to be fighting, we're going to fight. But I don't think he's assuming that there's going to be a big civil war. To me, that it, I think kind of reinforces this notion. There's something could happen in the sense because I mean, there's obviously been escalating tension. Yes. And that's been escalating over the last, you could really even chart it from the 1970s. And the culture war has been escalating. Sometimes it seems like it's escalating and sometimes it seems like it calms down and then it rises back up. And I think to a certain extent, maybe we're all kind of lulled to the fact that maybe it is serious. If there was a second Trump presidency, I'm, I'm not sure <laughs> I'm not going I agree there. with you. <laughs> I'm so not going there. <laughs> But, but I guess what I'm saying is, ironically, you're talking about people now saying, ooh, I don't know, civil war. And I'm saying before the actual civil war, that's not what they were doing. They were saying, ooh, I don't know what's happening. The union is maybe going to dissolve. They'll probably be right back. I don't know. Whatever. The union will be right back. Sooner or later. You know, like, like. So French. they thought they thought that when the tensions were leading up to the war that they would simmer down, it wouldn't quite go to war, or that maybe they would go to a brief war and it would, and then- They it, thought the South would secede and realize what a terrible mistake they made and then plead to come back. Or certainly that's that's what Benjamin Brown French thinks, right? He's like, we're ready to fight. If they want to fight, we'll fight. But the fact of the matter is, they're going to see this as a big mistake and they're going to be back in no time because they're being stupid. They really are going to survive on their own. No, they're not going to survive on their own. So it's really hard looking back to not assume what's coming is- 
what's coming, but right um, you to, know, re- to you know to see retroactive continuity, especially with the Civil War, right? Uh-huh. And that was a challenge for me in writing the book. What I wanted to understand was their mindset, and what that means is they don't know a war is coming. So try doing that, right? Putting the Civil War out of your head. It's like sure, yeah, that's war? very difficult. What war? Is there right. a war? And that's one of the difficulties of doing history is. And I think this is a major failing, in my view, of a lot of contemporary history is they go back and read modern values into the values of the era. And I think one of the things that you do well in your work is that you don't do that. You're not constantly focusing on trying to look at everything from the contemporary perspective. Quite the opposite. I I want to look forward in time with my characters. A lot of what I do as a historian and everything I do is try to look through the eyes to the degree that I can of the people who are there and understand why they do what they do. And my interest in violence is partly because seemingly violent acts don't seem logical on a certain level, right? Violent acts, why would someone fight a duel? What's the logic of that? But yes, we go to a field and shoot at each other. What does that accomplish? Why would any human being do that? And yet hundreds of elite folk in the late 18th and early 19th century did that as a historian. And it seems barbaric from our perspective yes. today, but this was the logic at the time. Well, I mean, precisely. I could see plenty of feminist scholars looking at duels and just taking all kinds of critical theory approaches the, to the, it, but I don't know if that would really aid us well, in The a great interesting deal. part to me is, how did that make sense? Exactly. I, and that's precisely what this book too. How did it make sense to bring a knife or a gun into the House of Representatives, how did that make sense, right? Because it had a logic to it. And if you're doing that, you assume you're going to get something that you want. So I want to understand that dynamic. I want to understand what in that moment these people think they're going to get. The outcome, the fact that down the road things are going to turn pretty ugly, they don't know that. And so I don't want that to be part of my computing. I want to be always looking forward in time and not back. When you phrase it in the sense of they felt like this would work, they felt like they were going to get something out of this. Because, of course, today you bring a gun into Congress, you would be expelled instantly and shamed. We hope so, yeah. Well, I mean, (laughs) I could be wrong, I guess, but I... I think I'm probably yeah. in the right. I mean, I, I yeah. don't think that's something we would put up with on any level. No. But they did. Everybody did. By 1858, by 1859, by 1860, almost everyone has a gun. They assume everybody else has a gun. They don't want to have guns. There's this one fellow who writes a wonderful letter in which he says, I I don't like carrying a gun. I've never done it in my life before. And now I have a loaded gun in my desk in the Senate, as does everybody else. And I don't want to use it. But it's in the power of the Northern Republicans to say something that's going to set this room off. And if it does get set off, I'm going to fight with the South. He literally is assuming that there might be a North versus South battle in the House or Senate. A shootout. Yeah. And he's ready to fight with the South. Okay. So if we switch this, all of what you just said and change the word gun to Twitter, (laughs) (laughs) maybe there's something there, right? I think very few people would claim that Twitter is a positive democratic impulse, but everybody's on it. Yeah, everybody's not necessarily using it irresponsibly. That's not fair. But certainly a lot of people are. Well, here's the thing I would say about Twitter. I'm going to make a connection between Twitter and the antebellum Congress. Look what you made me do. I know. Um, I'm going to go there. But here's the thing. And there is a link between what my characters are thinking about and saying as far as language and words are concerned and Twitter. My characters talk a lot about the fact that words matter. And the words that are thrown in front of the public matter profoundly. There's an anonymous document sent to the Speaker of the House in 1858. So again, right before the war. He's a Southerner and he signs it a well-wisher. But what he says is, look, I'm writing you this because 
my people on my side of the house, if any of you Republicans throw any kind of missile in our direction, and by missile, he means the wrong words, throw the wrong kind of missile and there's going to be bloodshed. I'm keeping my people from throwing missiles at you. Will you keep your side from throwing missiles at us? He's talking about words. And there's a constant dialogue in this period about, please be careful of your words. If you use the wrong words, you're going to drive people to do things because of emotion that they might not otherwise do. And once you cross that kind of a line, you're going to be in a dangerous place. So watch the way you're talking about things. And in that sense, that's a very Twittery kind of a logic, whether you're doing it deliberately or whether there's some foreign nation beaming in and throwing that kind of language out there in one way or another. Things are bouncing all over the place on Twitter, and some of that is deliberately inflammatory language. And words matter. They, they matter profoundly. Not necessarily just on Twitter, right? It ends no. up, I mean, it can end up being people taking videos of things. And since you're at Yale, like, I got to ask this. Uh-oh. You know, and when I think of just total degradation of civil discourse to the point where I think probably the first time I ever thought, wow, this uh, discrepancy between left and right might not be reconcilable. I have to say one of the first times I thought this was 2015 at Yale during the Halloween episode, these notorious videos of students screaming at, I think his name was Christakis, a couple, both of whom were professors at Yale who are now gone. But I mean, I have to say, watching those videos was astounding and disheartening and depressing. Were you there at that time? I was there at yeah. that time. Yeah. So what's interesting about that is, yeah, so obviously I, I didn't wasn't standing there in the middle sure. of the green watching this happen in the middle of campus, but I did see the videos. And I went into my class. I wasn't there that day. I think I came in, into class the next day. And the fact of the matter is that the students were upset and alarmed and unsettled. And it wasn't as though that happened and the entire campus was marching around with pitchforks. You know what I mean? It happened and everyone understood that there was something that had to be grappled with emotionally and ideologically and no one was quite sure how to do it. And I just said, look, I don't know the right thing to say in this particular moment. I really don't, but I'll listen to you guys if you have things you want to say about it and hear extra office hours, you know, so you don't have to do it in front so of So it was that upsetting to everybody? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. And, the, and Was it polarizing? Because the way it's portrayed in most of the reports that I've seen is as if it was like almost everybody was still against Professor Christakis, both students and faculty. Let's see, I didn't see any of that. What I saw were students of color who felt angry and upset and white students who felt upset on behalf of their friends who weren't white and felt guilty for feeling upset because it wasn't their right. The people who should feel upset were the people who were honestly in the middle of the... So I had students of all kinds coming into my office basically and saying, I'm upset and I... Really? So you had students who weren't involved in this directly or were they? No. And they were coming into your office discussing it with you. you. I will listen to you. I don't know what to say. I don't know the magical answer. I have no answers for you, but I will sit here and listen to you if you want to talk about this. And wh- what did they say? They were upset. They were upset because they felt that their friends were upset. The white, Some white students were upset on behalf of their black friends, but they didn't know it's not my place to be upset, is it? Because they're the ones who are being insulted in a way. Am I? Do and I? they just wanted to use you as a resource. They needed to talk. Huh. They needed to talk. But anyway, the, the reason why I raise that is it's not as though the campus was like in two camps with people on each side with pitchforks. It was more that people understood it was something important was happening 
and they needed to talk about it. So to put a final pin on this to a certain extent is that maybe the discourse isn't as eroded in your view as many would like to portray it. I, this is good because it's going to make me come down on a positive note. I think that in many ways we're at a moment where discourse really matters in a fundamental way, in a political way, in an ideological way, in a personal way. More than I've seen that a lot, I guess, as an adult, politically speaking. And yes, there's civility is the word and there's incivility. I don't think a lack of civility is a deadly sign that things are going wrong. I think protest is not necessarily always civil. And sometimes you need to have protest. I think this is a charged, fraught moment that we're in. Who the heck knows what's going to happen as a result of this moment? But I think it's worth remembering that we do have a political process that's supposed to be there as the foundation of what we're doing, regardless of whatever's happening around it. And speaking as an early American historian, the founders, what they thought that they were doing more than anything else, was putting in place a process, a political process that was documented and in the Constitution that when things got insane, you could resort to the process. And so thinking from a founderly point of view, I guess that's part of where I am right now, is that this is a weird, scary moment. We don't know what's going to happen. And I'm clinging to the political process and hoping that others will do the same thing. Well, thank you so much for doing this. Well, this was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Keeping It Civil, a production of the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership at Arizona State University. If you'd like to learn more about our classes or events or the requirements for a major and minor at the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership, go to scetl.asu.edu to learn more. This podcast was produced by Duncan Minch with audio production assistance from Central Sound at Arizona PBS. Thanks for listening.